What ho, ladies and gentlemen of podcast land. I'm Leon, occasionally known as Ponkin, and I'm joined in the Who Back When studio by our very own Drew. Hello, Drew. Hi. <laughs> We're here to introduce a bonus episode, indeed a series of bonus episodes that are very special, nay, unprecedented in the history of Who Back When. Perhaps in the history of any Doctor Who podcast. Or DocPost. You may have heard us dropping increasingly heavy hints over the past three or four months that we were writing our own audiobook. We even temporarily resuscitated our Big Finish audiobook reviews to tease the imminent arrival of this big day. They've got no time to listen to that now! The big day is upon us! We would like to point out that we intend no copyright infringement of any kind with this production. And we are not, and will never attempt to make any profit from this production, as if that were even possible. In fact, I've probably lost hundreds of pounds on the time cost alone. It is merely the heartfelt work of a merry band of devotees of one of the greatest franchises there ever was. An homage, if you will, and one that we hope will not offend anyone except Nazis. <laughs> what we have for you here is the first of not two, not three, but four parts of audio bookery to expertly tantalize your ear holes. Seriously detonate your mind space. And secure our place in Whovian history, maybe even a page on TARDIS Wikia. Only one word of warning at this stage, our podcast slash isn't for all ages, so you may not want to invite the whole family in to listen. We shan't give away any more at this stage, you'll simply have to listen to it for yourselves. And when you've done so, please do let us know what you think. Absolutely. Please pop a review on iTunes or a comment on whobackwhen.com. Thank you in advance. Oh, my goodness. Ladies and gentlemen, we are so excited because everyone is here. Marie. Hi. Jim. Hi. Miriam. hey The Rawmeister. Hello. And one more co-host, maybe you'll remember him, here recording with us today just a week before his wedding day, Nicolaley. What up? So, without further ado, please enjoy part one of Operation Pandorica. Here we go. Throughout the ages, the lone centurion has guarded the mysterious object known as the Pandorica. First recorded by the Emperor Hadrian's retinue in 122 AD, the last known sighting of this legendary figure was at the height of London's Blitz in 1941. Thanks to a generous donation from the Who Back When Foundation, we can now bring you the true story behind this remarkable myth, a dramatic retelling based on the account given to us by the last living eyewitness of those events. Funniest thing happened to me, first time I was back home from the war in North Africa. I couldn't wait to get home to my sweetheart, you see. Not that she needed me around to take care of her, a right firecracker she was. Great shock of air, big boom of a voice that put the frighteners on Hitler. But then, it wasn't like in me dad's day, when you only had the odd Zeppelin to worry about. Now the sky over London was full of Junkers, and it seemed to me there was as much chance of me getting a telegram saying she'd been... Well, as her getting one about me. It would have helped if she hadn't been so keen on winning the war all by herself. She was out all hours of the day, by all accounts, fire-watching, ushering people into the shelters, always the last one in. Called her the siren, they did, because whenever the alarm went up, she'd be there, ready to get you to safety. Anyway, you don't want to hear an old fool ramble on about his lost love. You want to hear about the lone centurion, as they call him. Well, we landed safe and sound, and I caught the train up from Portsmouth. Then I found my way to dear old Chiswick, sure enough. 
It wasn't what the Luftwaffe were most interested in, but still, here and there there'd be holes where there used to be houses, or tarpaulins across the roofs where the bombs fell in. You got used to that somehow, nothing being permanent. Turns out, though, there was even more afoot than met the eye when I was reunited with my Eileen. Wilf, is that you and everything? Wilfred Moss would never be so ungentlemanly as to admit this, but we shameless cads at the Hubakwen Foundation share no such qualms. His girlfriend of the time, Eileen Dover, was decidedly on the common, ginger and shouty side, being from the East End borough of Cockleswinkle, an area bombed so heavily by the Germans that it was actually wiped off all post-war maps. Alas, even its accent, a confusing mix of immigrant northerners and an abundance of cider, was lost to posterity. Any commonness, gingerity and shoutitude to be found in his family thereafter can all be traced to Eileen. You bet it is, sweetheart. It'll take more than a few Germans to keep me out of your air. It's not me air, I want you in. Eileen purred, pulling Wilf in close by his shoulders. When are you going to put the cock back in this cockness, fella? Eileen, in times of war we are to be upstanding citizens. Well, I can feel you're standing plenty upright as it is. And you're in the army, ain't you? So if you're standing to attention, you must want a full military inspection. Wilf, ever the gallant, felt himself in a bit of a tight squeeze. Let's catch up on his part of the story in about half an hour. Actually, no. Give it 45 minutes. Legend. In a secret bunker across the river in Vauxhall, unbeknownst to both the British and the Germans, there lurked three enemy agents even more mechanical and unemotional than Hitler's most brainwashed Nazi. Orders have been received from super-secret Dalek High Command. What do they want this time? They say the universe is shrinking. Soon we will suffer maximum shrinkage. Like a frightened turtle. Daleks are not turtles. We will execute the orders from super-secret Dalek High Command. Do they evolve the doctor? Way to go, Dalek Obvious. We just failed the Dalek Bechdel test. It's not my fault. The Doctor is always involved. Now you are Dalek-splaining. Dalek-splain! Dalek-splain! Silence! Do they evolve the silence? Oh, for Davros' sake! Incorrect. You are to be silent. Our orders are as follows. Loud shouting getting gradually quieter. Repetition! Repetition! In a third location, the top-secret cabinet war rooms deep below Whitehall, the quiet, bespectacled Paisley engineer Edwin Braceface was coming face-to-face, although not brace-to-brace, with the man who stood to be his new boss. If only he could pass this job interview. And so, in summary, I'd say my best quality is probably the humanity I can bring to the job, sir. In this war, more than any before it, it's vital to remember that we are not fighting machines, but men. The room fell quiet for a moment. Braceface gave his interlocutor a minute to compose what was likely to be a witty, historic, devastating Bon Moor in reply, but none was forthcoming. As the second minute crept by, Braceface began to fancy he could hear the gentle gurgling of incipient snoring. Uh, ahem, or of course, women. Women, yes, I married one. Braceface considered asking what exactly that had to do with warfare, but never having been romantically entangled and still clinging onto an idealism as yet untarnished, he thought better of it and maintained a nervous silence. He was desperate to avoid committing any kind of indiscretion if possible. But what if his hesitation was the worst possible course of action? He felt disoriented, claustrophobic. This deep underground, the only noise came from his own warring impulses, which seemed to fire chaotically on him from all sides, reminding him of no man's land. 
At least in the trenches he'd known which way to dive. The great man opposite eyed him beadily. Of course. There's nothing in the Geneva Conventions to save us from our wives. Again, Braceface only smiled, trying to appear amiable. Churchill waited, grunted, then abruptly rose to his feet, irate at his quips having generated no acclaim. Great waves of water sloshed back and forth across his bath, which as usual he had been in, and slopped bubbles sprinkled with cigar ash onto the floor at Braceface's feet. Only there weren't nearly as many bubbles as Braceface would have liked. War is hell, Mr. Braceface, and we may be forced to stand before the devil himself, thrust into the most uncomfortable positions in parts unknown. Well then, the situation before you, what do you make of it? The British Bulldog was barking now, and Braceface began to quake at the terrible sight. The snarl that transfixed you with the depths of its menace, the implacable belligerence, the bristling fur, the swollen features, the bulging bulk. No nickname could be more apropos. Churchill was definitely, every inch, the wrinkled archetype. Don't sit there like some dumb machine. Answer me like a man. I, I, I... What's the matter? Can't wrap your mouth around it? Spit it out, for heaven's sake! Oh, my, my goodness, sir, forgive me. I'm just so afraid of blowing it. This may strike you as rather a stiff challenge, Mr. Braceface, but I have to know you're enough of a man that you can handle the pressure. If, heaven forfend, the Nazis were to overrun London, you'd be staring down the barrel of something far worse. Even so, you're in gravest danger of dropping the ball. Come now, your analysis is required. Out with it. I... I believe we must keep an eagle eye out for our opportunity, because the smallest tool of our deliverance, although the most difficult to spot, could be the very thing that helps us win the war. Is that what you think? A secretary stepped forward at that moment from the shadows, startling Braceface, and handed Winnie a clipboard and pen. Almost biting right through his cigar, Winnie snatched up the pen and scrawled a cursory cross across the bottom of the top page. He growled, peering at Braceface's spectacles over the top of his own with hostility. Perhaps someone with your keen eyesight would be better suited manning the coastline with the home guard. I don't think you'd be a good fit here. Edwin Braceface stumbled out into the Westminster courtyard, skidding across the polished stone slick with rain. His glasses steamed up instantly. Oh. By the time he'd wiped them clear with his handkerchief and placed them back on his nose, the door behind him had shut with nary a sound and he was entirely alone in the square. He'd never felt more pathetic in his life. He'd promised to write back to his parents in their peaceful little Paisley post office to tell them how the interview had gone. Somehow he'd been certain he was destined to play a more heroic role in this conflict than he'd managed in the Great War. This time he hadn't even managed to make it as far as the battlefield. Too old to serve in the forces, too slow-witted for his revered leader, now he'd failed his country twice at its times of greatest need. He set off in no particular direction, unseen tears streaming down his face, just another forgotten drip trickling its way into the great thirsty drains of drizzly London. At that very moment, back in Chiswick, Eileen was being overwhelmed by a powerful <coughs> denouement. Go blimey, strike a light and no mistake. That's some first class shooting, Private Mott. Stay behind for extra target practice. Is that your way of saying I get a special commendation? If there's a medal going, it's me who should be getting it for putting up with you, you rascal. This is a prime example of what historians have dubbed 40s bants. So have you been taking care of yourself like I told you? 
Oh, here we go again. I can if you'd like. <laughs> Not till I finish my ciggy. I've been saving it these last six months. Go on then, what have you been up to? Eileen's demeanour changed, and for the first time since seeing Wilf again, the smile faded from her freckled face. I don't mind telling you, it's been hard not having you about. And not in the way you know I like. I mean, the RAF turned the tide, stopped the Germans coming over during the days, but the nights were terrible, right up past Christmas. Our WVS shelter had to move three times. No. Oh yeah, better than some poor souls, Ed. There was one canteen in Whitechapel where the building fell right on top of them. Of course, we pray every night for deliverance, have a sing-song, belt out the audium, and then the good Lord receives whom he will. Here, our ARP warden though, he's a right bleeding pillock, wouldn't even at his post one night, and I had to do it for him. That, and I had to fix one of the vans too, as steering had gone. Same night. Put forward for a citation I was by some bloke, come round flashing a bit of paper, said he was front war ministry, but I ain't seen him since. Don't know if nothing came of it. Still... I ain't my cup of tea that shift. Too right you did. Wilf's face was now shining with admiration as well as postcoital perspiration. Why didn't you write me in any of this? You'd only have bleeding worried, wouldn't you? Would have put you off your stroke. Although now you're back, I can see you've not lost your touch. Eileen tossed all twinkles and dimples. Now you're back, though, there is one thing I can tell you about. Awful queer it is. Here we are, trying to have a nice modern war, and this is one twit who walks about wearing nothing but some ropey old Roman get-up up and down High Road. Get away. Yeah, seen him with me own mince pies. Don't know what his game is. Nobody else seems to notice. Suppose I'm not originally from round here, and no one else seems to mind. But it's proper odd if you ask me. Heard someone call him Fred. Ask him about a discount car. <laughs> he went in that game no more, he said. Well, I ain't never heard of no one like that before. Sounds like you've been properly spying on him, taking a real interest. Oi, now, don't you go getting wrong idea, Wilfred Mott. You know I ain't the type to be taking no interest where I shouldn't. All right, steady on, girl. Just two minutes ago you were saying I was bang on. Eileen took a final dissonisive pull on her cigarette and brought the ignition within half an inch of her lips, then eagerly stubbed out the end. Can't say no to a bit of banging on. Once more onto the breach. Whoa! But as Wilf supplied the barrage and Eileen the balloons, the Daleks weren't lying back. They were thinking only of England's demise and taking the rest of the universe with it. That concludes the agenda. Any other business? Could you perhaps round off with a pithy summary of everything you said? I obey. We are to infiltrate the British Security Service. We will extract information and locate the Pandorica. If we do not succeed, London is to be destroyed by firebombs. Once the Pandorica is located, we shall detonate it and reboot the universe with Dalek DNA. A new creation will be born from the final atoms of the old in the image of the Daleks. Reality itself will be Dalek kind! <laughs> Remind me what this week has to do with it. Now we continue our interview with that most diamond of geezers, Wilfred Mott. After all that carry-on, it stuck with me what my Eileen had said about this bloke done up in Roman togs. So after a day or two, I found a spare moment and went to take a butcher's for myself, just out of curiosity, mind. Well, would you Adam and Eve it? It was exactly as she'd said. The war swirled on around, military vehicles bustling this way and that, 
everyone making do in spite of it all. And in the early Burley, the one thing that never seemed to change was this Roman fella was always stood guarding the same building on the high road. Turns out I'd seen him before. He could have been there all my life for all I know, but I never twigged something was afoot. That and I never knew what a Roman looked like. And only God knows how Arlene did. I always reckoned he just had a uniform on that seemed proper old-fashioned, like he could have been from some ceremonial regiment. You get all sorts of silly looking blokes standing in front of buildings. I mean, if it's good enough for the king, I'm not going to ask any silly questions. But now, Eileen had me wondering. Aye, aye. Uh, hello? Don't mind me, squire. I'm just Wilfred Mott. Live right down the road. Saw you on your tod. Thought you could do with a natter. Wilf thrust his hand at the centurion who hesitated for just a second. Just long enough for Wilf to notice. Fred. Right, nice to meet you, Fred. Probably seen me before, have you? Can't say that I have. You're from around here, then? Aye, just down the road on what you may call it. The road just there. Wilfred Mott eyed the centurion's clothing suspiciously and employed his most surreptitious of infiltration tactics. Ooh, it's a bit taters, isn't it? Aren't you cold in that whistling flute? What? Uh, oh, the suit. No, I'm fine, thanks. It's Corinthian leather. Leather, eh? And thick cloth. Cloth's warm. Pretty warm. You're not cold, then? Nope. Me, I'm freezing. Sorry to hear that. Still, bet you could do with a nice hot cup of Rosie Lee. Thanks, but I don't drink tea. You don't drink tea? Nope. Never really took to it. Never really took to it? You some kind of foreign agent? <laughs> there was a moment, then, in which Wilfred Mott thought he may have stumbled upon a far grander conspiracy than he could ever have imagined. But the moment passed as he realised that the Third Reich was likely not in the habit of outfitting their covert operatives in quite so ostentatious an outfit. There was no denying that, albeit rather odd-looking, it was fetching in an anachronistic sort of way. Masculine and tight in all the right places, the Corinthian leather creaked as Fred's undoubtedly manly form bulged behind it. And suddenly Wilfred wondered how this stranger might react to the attentions of a certain young lady, if ever he noticed them directed at him. More precisely, he wondered if Fred could be trusted to behave like a gentleman. So, you ever see anyone else around here? People come and go, nobody stops for long. Any ladies? Any redheads, perhaps? I like redheads. Do you now? I have a redhead girl, you know. Do you now? I'm waiting for her as it happens, so you should probably... Oh, you'd like that, wouldn't you? If I just left... Lie ain't having this. She's spoken for, she is. So don't go getting any fancy ideas to go with your fancy dress. Uh, I think you've got the wrong impression. You go find your own cows and kisses, or I'll show you. Hey, settle down, all right? I have a pair of fists, you know. Well, I have a sword. Oh, is that made of Corinthian leather too? No, it's made out of steel. What are you talking about? She don't love you. You hear? At this, the centurion's whole bearing changed. From keeping the peace to a war footing, his right hand quivered, torn between pointing at Wilf and going for his gladius. Wilf had crossed the Rubicon, and this Roman wasn't going to take it lying down. Everybody tells me that. Everybody. Ever since the beginning. Including her. She's confused, that's all. She might fancy this other man too. She might try to hide it from me. But I'd know that deep down somewhere, in a place in her heart no one else can see, she still loves me. Why else would she let me follow her around? Just because she enjoys putting me down? <laughs> she could have run off with her hero, but she won't. I'm the one she's really been with for years now. 
I've got squatters' rights, and I'll win in the end. How could you, you rotten Roman rogue? I came, I saw, I waited, and I conquered. It can't be true. It can't. I could never be double-crossed by my Eileen. Hang on. Who the hell is Eileen? She's only the most daring and intelligent and beautiful woman in all of London, that's who. I see. The reddest, gingerest, carrot-toppiest girl in the whole world. I shouldn't be surprised. Well, alright. Now I know that. I feel the same way about my Amy. Oh. I think the tea rooms might also do coffee. Best if you leave. Righto. Beg your pardon, sir. And don't come back. Wilfred Moss had done three things that night. He'd broken a shoelace, patted a dog, and just made an enemy of the man who would soon need his help to save the entire universe. (laughs) 